the second time in six years a British MP has been violently killed while doing their job. Why can't we keep our politicians safe? Discussing the tragic death of Sir David Amos with Aaron Bastani. Also on the show, we'll discuss Priti Patel's brutal new border policy, an attack on Keir Starmer by Dominic Cummings, and I speak to Sean Fay about Robert Winston's claim that no one can change their biological sex. Today, David Amos became the second MP in six years to be violently killed while doing his job. Amos, who has been an MP since 1983, was stabbed to death at a surgery for residents in his South End constituency. As yet, few details have been released about the killer, though we do know um, well, the alleged killer is 25 and remains in police custody. The investigation into the attack will be led by counter-terrorism police. Speaking this afternoon, the Prime Minister paid tribute to David Amos. Well, I think all our hearts are full of shock and sadness today uh, to the loss of Sir David Amos MP, who was killed in his constituency surgery uh, in a church after almost 40 years of continuous service to the people of Essex and the whole of the United Kingdom. And the reason I think people are so shocked and saddened is, above all, he was one of the kindest, nicest, most gentle people in politics. And he also had an outstanding record of passing laws to help the most vulnerable, whether the people who are suffering from endometriosis, uh, passing laws to uh, end cruelty to animals, or doing a huge amount to reduce uh, the fuel poverty suffered by people uh, up, and, up and down the country. David was a man who believed passionately in this country and in its future. And we've, we've lost today a fine public servant and a much loved friend and colleague. And our thoughts are very much today with uh, his wife, uh, his children and his family. Of course, the death of Amos evokes memories of the murder of Joe Cox in 2016. She, like Amos, was killed while attending a constituency surgery. Following today's tragic events, Joe Cox's sister, Kim Ledbeater, said this to the BBC. Totally shocked by what's happened to think that something so horrific could happen again to another MP, to another family, um, and scared and frightened and... Yeah, a real rollercoaster of emotions, to be honest. My phone started going straight away. My mum and dad, my partner, my friends, you know, are you okay? Um, and I was okay. I was visiting a school, actually. Um, but it, the shock and the feelings for us as a family, obviously, as to what we went through and that another family is having to go through that again, it's horrific. And that it is hard to put into words how that feels for me, but... The, the main people I'm thinking about are David's family and his friends and actually the community that he represents and has represented for such a long time. And I think that's the thing that people need to understand. This is about a lot of people whose lives will have been changed forever today. Aaron, this is obviously an incredibly tragic event, but it is, I mean, it's incredibly striking to have had two so similar attacks, tragic deaths. In this case, it's a suspicion of, of, of murder in the space of six years, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite significant, I think. And, and of course, you're going to instinctively go to the Joe Cox murder 
um, to draw to draw some context. But there's a lot more too. You know, he had a terrorist attack at the Islington Mosque, which, which killed somebody. The guy who was arrested and charged and ultimately imprisoned uh, had planned to attack folks, both Sadiq Khan and, and, and Jeremy Corbyn. Sadiq Khan has permanent guards. We saw the scenes of people like Anna Soubry uh, being harassed at the real sort of crucible moment of the Brexit debate in 2019. We saw attacks on people canvassing for the Labour Party uh, in the 2019 general election. And so I think it is indisputable that there is a, a general sense of rising enmity and violence implicit within that, within Britain's domestic politics. Uh, and obviously there's a, there's a huge spectrum of that. And I'm not trying to equate somebody being spat out on the, in the street and somebody being murdered. Of course not. Uh, but there is something that's clearly changed in the last five to 10 years. Uh, and it's not about coarsening on, of politics or people being rude online. It's the genuine threat of, of violence, and in this case, lethal violence. And I think unless we have a proper debate as to why that's happening and what we can do about it, this will happen more often. And, 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 and like I say, that doesn't just apply to MPs. It applies to, to mayors, councillors, elected officials of all kinds, but also party activists. Something clearly has changed quite decisively. Mm, the, the other context which is being you know, rightly mentioned today is Stephen Timms, who was stabbed multiple times in 2010, also at his his constituency surgery. The, the theme of constituency surgery seems to be because that's when everyone can publicly find out where an MP is going to be and where they're going to be with, well, as we've come to understand, little security. When they're in Westminster, it'd be very difficult to, to do any harm to an MP. But if you want to be in close proximity to them, then, you know, mm. that's, that's the place to do it. That's why it's, it seems to keep happening. Um, you've mentioned there sort of, you know, the changing political atmosphere. The other point this raises is the more simple one of of security you know how how is this being allowed to happen over and over again the bbc gave this summary um, of the security that mps do currently have so they write when they are in parliament mps are well protected by a specialist armed police department called parliamentary and diplomatic protection for most mps there is not the same close protection when they are in their constituencies parliament of Parliament offers MPs and their staff guidance on security, including tips on how to run a safe constituency surgery, suspicious post and home security. It says Parliament will pay for MPs to have some security measures installed, such as security alarms and shutters. And they also say that after the murder of Joe Cox in 2016, the spending on MP security rose from £170,000 in 2015-2016 to £4.5 million two years later. So they clearly, you know, some changes have been made since that murder in 2016. For me, though, it just seems seems like kind of obvious that we should just taxpayers should fund every MP to have a security guard at their surgeries. Sort of, lots of MPs have, have gone out on on the radio today, and I think quite rightly said they don't want this to stop them having a a close relationship with their constituents and going out in the street and meeting people. But as we've discussed, it does seem these surgeries are the specific moment which you know unfortunately have become dangerous because everyone in the community can find out where the MP is going to be at a particular time and at the moment it seems that they don't have sufficient security and instead of the state just providing money for burglar alarms or whatever I don't see why we don't you know there's only 650 MPs can't we just all give them a, a dedicated security guard or at least you know get the police to stand outside the constituency whenever they are 
having surgeries. I don't know, Aaron, do you think, does that seem as, as much of a sort of obvious response to you as it does to me? Well, I think for surgeries, I mean, you're only looking at a couple of hours a week, right? Um, and I, I agree, given what happened with Stephen Timms, given what happened with uh, Joe Cox and now this, I mean, that seems like a, a pretty obvious solution. What I would say, Michael, is that I don't think changing the security around this is, is even the primary response. If you look at the United States, for instance, yes, we, we have this stuff happen here more than in the US, but my goodness, they have you know repeated assassination attempts on literally the president of the United States, somebody with the highest security in the world. And so I think that's part of the answer. But I think you also have to talk about, as a political culture, what, what kinds of things do we want to see and not see? And look, the left has been a little bit responsible for this in the last 20, 30 years. And th th there's never really been sort of clear lines around that. People have, you know, protested against politicians, quite rightly so, Michael. I think the worry is here that you sort of dispense with all scrutiny of politicians, which is absolutely not the answer. But it has to be done with respect and certainly not with that, and certainly without the implicit threat of violence. You know, we've seen, for instance, uh, Kristen Sinema in the US. She's been chased into toilets about voting in a particular way with some legislation. I think that's, I think that's acceptable. I do think, because I'm, I'm seeing that video footage, maybe there's things happening which I've not seen, but the footage I've seen, people are being calm, they're having an informed conversation about the substance of something that is really important, a particular bill where she is voting a certain way and not responding to constituents' demands. I, I think that's acceptable. Of course, we have to have a debate about what is permissible. But clearly, as a political culture, we want scrutiny, the ability to scrutinize, but we also don't want politicians completely divorced from the environments which they're in charge of. You know, we, we don't want them to be walking around in a little securitized, policed bubble where people can't talk to them. We do want uh, mayors and councillors and MPs who get on the bus, who go, you know, shopping for their own food if they want to, if they've got time. You know, that, that is a really precious thing in a free society, Michael. So I agree with you about the constituency surgery thing. My worry is we try and police and securitize our way out of this. Rarely works. Mm. I, I tweeted today that, it, it, you know, I found it surprising that you know, I looked up how many people had been, been killed, um, United States politicians. And over the past six years, so since 2016, there'd only been one in the United States. I think previously, historically, there have been many more American politicians who've been murdered than UK ones. But the fact that in the past six years, we've had two, they've had one, and that's a country which is five times as large, and there are more guns than people, far more guns than people. It seems surprising to me that we've had more deadly, well, more deadly political violence directed at politicians, at least, than they have. Some of the responses I, I got were people suggesting that you don't have things such as surgeries in the United States. It would be much, much harder to speak to your congressperson in America than it is to speak to your MP in this country. Obviously, we don't want to you know, we don't want to import that. It's good that you can speak on a one-to-one -one basis with your MP. Mm. I think that also they just give them a security detail, which to me, it seems at this point, just give the MPs a security detail, at least for any moment where their location is advertised. That, that seems to be the obvious. That's a, but then, Michael, you've got canvassing, you've got campaigning, you've got public events. I mean, that's a lot. I don't know, again, look, if it means people don't get get attacked and killed, obviously it's important, but that, you know, I would be concerned about presenting that as not much resource mm. for a constituency surgery. I agree with you. And given the three people that have been attacked since 2010, they were all at constituency surgeries. I mean, that seems a very sensible thing to do. I don't really see the argument against it, but if you're going to provide a security detail for all MPs, then what, mayors? 
you know, if it starts to happen with councillors. And like I said, that's, that's not a flippant comment, Michael, because I think mm. there is clearly a distinct change in the political culture of this country. And also, look, the last 15 years, mobile phones, the internet, people can just find things so much more easily than they could 20 years ago at the start of the 21st century. So, so clearly you've got that shift in culture, the shift in facility and ease of being able to locate people. So yes, of course, the policing is one part, but I think we need that culture shift too as well. You know, my local MP, Stephen Morgan, I'm in Portsmouth South. He has pints with his constituents, you know, pint mm. with an MP. Um, and that would be tragic if we lost that. It would be really tragic if, we, if he started to do that and you had, you know, a, a police officer present. You are right. I mean, there is no easy answer here. And it is true, I suppose, actually, the reason all three of these events that we've discussed happened at constituency surgeries is because they are the easiest way to come into contact with your MP if you want to do harm. But presumably, if, if there was always a police officer or a security guard at those meetings, then you know, people with bad intentions would, would look for other routes. Yeah, so I mean, anybody that's tried to get into the House of Commons or Portcullis House, which is, of course, where they all have their offices, knows how incredibly difficult it is to access MPs. You go through metal detectors, you're patted down, you know, it's very, very hard to access it. I find it very strange that that's the setting in Westminster. And yet, like you say, if you want to go see your local MP, every single week they're in the same place, more or less. And yet there's barely any security protocol whatsoever. It seems like a bit of a, a sort of hang up you know, from, from decades past. So yeah, I think for me, that's the thing that definitively you could, you could change without much argument against. Um, I suppose the, the, the one last thing we haven't talked about, and I mean, we won't talk about it at length because so much is unknown, is the nature of this attack. As I say, we, we don't know if this was political violence. It could have just been someone who was having, you know, a particular episode. We know at this point that the terrorist unit are looking into it. That's not to confirm this was terrorism, but it suggests that they have some suspicion that this was politically motivated. How much, Aaron, do you think it matters who this person ends up being and, and what their motive ends up having been? Yeah, I find it really, there's, there's two really strange things. So obviously people are talking about the, the MP in question, David Ames, I think. I mean, I don't mean, mean to mispronounce his name. I wasn't familiar with him until today. Um, people are saying what, how wonderful he is and... Uh, he fought for XYZ cause. Other people are saying, actually, well, he's a, you know, he's part of a Tory government at XYZ. It doesn't really matter. If you're a public servant, if you're a member of parliament, you, you clearly shouldn't be killed. You shouldn't be subject to any kind of violence, let alone lethal violence. So I think the content of the MP doesn't matter. And also, I think that the, the nature of why the, the person's killed them equally doesn't really matter. I think that the two points for me, as I say, I'll return to the, the structural issues around safety of, 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 of elected officials, but also activists, actually. And the role the media plays in demonizing certain people and ramping up a culture of violence and a permissibility around violence, um, and, and, and as, as an appendage to the secure, security issues, like I say, yes, the culture. It's not, it's not acceptable to just go up to um, an elected representative and start shouting in their face and spitting. It isn't. It is not. And you might think, well, they've done something bad. I don't like it. Okay, well, let's say you're on the left, you're a socialist. That gives license to, to a neo-Nazi to do the same thing to Zara Sultana. Clearly, in a free society, you need certain rules of conduct in terms of political debate, clearly. Now, they're quite permeable. You might transgress them slightly. It doesn't matter. It's not the end of the world. But clearly, they do need to exist, at least as conventions. And so I think, yeah, you've got the security issue, but also the culture issue around, around politics. 
not good. And I'm not bl blaming the left or anything. You know, the, the really awful culprits in this, Michael, have been the media over the last 10 to 15 years in terms of demonizing various, various figures. That, that, that doesn't appear to have played a role here. But when you think about the attack on Joe Cox, when you think about the attacks on, on Labour um, canvases in 2019, if you think about Steve Khan, who's been vilified by the tabloid press for years, he just happens to be the first uh, Muslim mayor of a, a city in the UK, not really a surprise, and he's given his own um, exclusive security detail. Uh, you've had a far-right extremist who, like I said earlier, killed somebody in an attack outside a mosque and wanted to kill both Sadiq Khan and Jeremy Corbyn while they were in London. You know, so, yes, there's lots to talk about as a, as a, as a political culture in the UK about how we try and ensure this doesn't happen again, but that has to start at the very top. You know, there has been this, this okaying, this acceptability around demonization, othering, hostility, loathing towards people you don't politically like, and almost always that goes against the left. Always, because, look, why? Because of newspaper ownership and the interests they represent. Um, I'm sure we'll come back to this story, especially as more details emerge about the exact nature of the attack and also as you know, various responses as to how MPs will be kept safe um, in future come to light. For now, I think we'll, we'll move on to our other stories for, for, for tonight because, as I say, there is, there is still so many unknowns in this case. Let's go to our next story. A new row about transgender rights and free speech has erupted at the University of Sussex. The controversy centres around the gender-critical academic Kathleen Stock, who has been subject to protests by students who deem her views transphobic. Kathleen Stock has denied being a transphobe. She is, however, committed to the belief that trans women with male genitalia should be denied access to women's spaces. In her latest book, Material Girls, she complains that, and I quote, immersion in a fiction about sex change is being coercively required of people. The controversy at Sussex came up this week on Question Time, and TV doctor and scientist Robert Winston gave this response. I will say this categorically, that you cannot change your sex. Your sex actually is there in every single cell in the body. You have a chromosomal sex, you have genetic sex, you have hormonal sex, you have all sorts of different kinds of psychological brain sex, they're all different. And we are very confused about this, unfortunately, and, and regrettably, it's got into this argument that people are now, would, will now accuse me of being transphobic. Oh, Lottie, there are trans people who say you absolutely can do that. Well, unfortunately, you can't say this publicly. This is one of, this is one of the big problems. Even saying, saying this on this program undoubtedly will result in my getting a huge amount of hate mail. It always does. But I, 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 I do think it's, it, it's a big issue about the attitudes. There are, of course, issues which are important about young people who are confused about their sex, but we won't go down that route here. But it does affect a whole lot of issues in schools and elsewhere in our society. Of course, we should accept people as they are. Overall, I think it's a very sad thing that we can't discuss biological science without actually getting completely caught up emotionally with something which is really completely wrong. Um, let's look specifically at the, the core empirical claim um, he made there. So he said, I will say this categorically that you cannot change your sex. Your sex actually is there in every single cell in the body. You have a chromosomal sex, you have genetic sex, you have hormonal sex, you have all sorts of psychological brain sex. They're all different. 
That statement has been celebrated by so-called gender-critical feminists as confirming their contention that trans women can never be women. So what should we make of Robert Winston's comments? I spoke earlier to Sean Fay, author of the best-selling The Transgender Issue. Well, I mean, it's news to me that I can't change my chromosomal sex. I mean, no one has ever told me that. And anyone who tries to tell me that is always thrown in jail. That's very true. Professor Winston makes such a bold point there. Yeah, I mean, it's that answer was a kind of bizarre mixture of things. I mean, obviously, he's correct, as pretty much every trans person I know would agree about the unchangeable nature of your genetics. Um, and this is kind of where this debate gets lost, I think, is that it often seems to put arguments in the mouths of trans people that I've certainly never heard, and I don't think any of us are making. Um, interestingly, he does outline the fact that, which would be an argument that I have made and do make, which is that obviously what we mean by sex can mean many different things. So yes, chromosomal sex, which is immutable, um, but it can also mean, uh, we refer to it to mean hormonal sex, which he mentioned, which was odd because he said, you cannot change your sex, then outlined hormonal sex. And, uh, I mean, I'm here to say your hormonal sex can change because I've changed it. <laughs> um, and of course, a lot of the things in science that are tied to sex are tied to the distribution of hormones in your body. So like if someone was treating me as a male with a testosterone driven endocrine system, uh, they would be sadly disappointed. So someone would have to consider the fact that I've reconfigured my hormonal balance. And then he even referred to brain sex or psychological sex, which I suppose is what I would call gender identity, because I think brain sex potentially sounds a bit backwards. But even there, he's sort of acknowledging, bizarrely in trying to sort of put words in the mouths of trans people, he seemed to be acknowledging something that is correct and was actually what I agree with, which is uh, that sex as we use it is, uh, often means a cluster of things. And the difficulty in this discussion is that people start to isolate different meanings of how they use the term sex uh, and often to talk across purposes about it, which he seemed um, to kind of actually demonstrate in his answer. Uh, the other thing I would probably say, yeah, is that this idea that it's sort of unsayable um, in mainstream discourse, I find quite amusing as a trans person because I think people are very quick to say it. Uh, but fundamentally, I guess my fundamental reaction to his comments there are, why are we discussing genetic sex uh, with regards to trans people, because all of what my work has certainly been about is about talking about the social experience of trans people, which is what we call gender, uh, and how people are politically and socially treated as a regards to their um, gender identity and gender expression and the consequences that can have for them. And it's sort of bizarre that we've gotten very much trapped into this discussion of uh, biology, um, which is obviously relevant in certain circumstances, particularly reproductive biology, but certainly your chromosomes. I mean, no one sees your chromosomes when they're harassing you. We've talked about these, these issues sort of before in, in the DMs. And I suppose I come from a perspective where I feel like actually maybe trans people, or not, you know, I'm not putting the burden on trans people, but people arguing for trans rights maybe should talk about biology a bit more because what's going on at the moment is Robert Winston saying, look, I'm the guy who's talking about science, about how things really are. And then activists from Stonewall or whatever are, are, are buying into this line where you've got sex is one thing, gender is another. And it makes him seem like he's the realistic guy. Whereas what I was, what I thought when I saw that clip was he's saying, oh, there is brain sex, right? So it's, it's this idea that trans women have a male brain and they're just pretending to be women. Whereas one potential comeback to that is that there are lots of studies that suggest that actually the structure of trans women's brains are very similar to the structure of cis women's brains. So there is a sort of biological underpinning to transness, 
which is an argument I see is often people people are unwilling to make, which I think would probably counter Robert Winston quite quite successfully, but is is avoided. The, well, what I make of it, the reason that it's avoided is because uh, certainly not what I don't, for example, believe there's a biological underpinning to transness, and I don't think there needs to be. And I think like advancing it as a universal, I mean, there are some people that very fundamentally do believe that, particularly people who felt acute uh, sense of their gender identity or gender dysphoria from a very, very young age, and they can remember it or children. But fundamentally, to me, it's the same argument as looking for a gay gene, right? It's actually a very dismal way to look at human sexuality, to understand it not as a social phenomenon, but to have to be like, not our fault, we're born this way. Um, and it's the similar thing. I think where it comes to biology, sure, if you want to talk about um, medical treatment, uh, it is relevant, right? Like, I don't have a uterus. I'm never going to give birth to children. A trans man might need a cervical smear, as we kind of heard endlessly around the uh, the Labour Party conference. Is that um, obviously that that you know this contention over cervixes when we know that there are trans men with cervixes? Obviously, there it's relevant to talk about it for the purposes of healthcare. But a lot of the reason I don't think when you say Stonewall is sort of like not talking about biology. I mean, it's not really relevant to what Stonewall's work is. Stonewall's work, for example, is usually going to workplaces, sometimes schools, and being like, here's how to make this environment more welcoming to trans people. And then you're talking about what, like making sure that you respect people's pronouns in the workplace or making sure there's a gender neutral toilet. Really, biology doesn't come into that. And often I think what happens with uh, the kind of canard that trans people are like fundamentally biology deniers, despite the fact that we like are constantly banging on about the fact that you have to wait ages for healthcare that we need. Often, if you're transsexual, is you know an older discourse. If you're someone that wants to medically transition, um, you know you're fully aware of your sex characteristics and your need to change them. So, like we're actually acutely aware of biology. Um, I think what where it becomes a sensitive topic is um, is that then the yeah the term sex is levied. Uh, as a kind of biological truth in order to make exclusionary arguments about denying trans people's services, inclusion, solidarity. And particularly in the case of trans women, um, it's often kind of levied to, to suggest that, yeah, there are some experiences we will never have regards, regards to reproductive um, biology. But also it sort of quite quickly morphs into arguments about why we should be denied um, services based on gender-based violence, which we do experience. Uh, normally to make quite grim arguments about the fact that we're just people find our bodies a bit gross or they think we're a bit masculine or they think we're a bit aggressive i mean that's what it quite quickly morphs into is when people talk about male and female they want to make trans women seem like mannish aggressors um so quite quickly a discussion of biology slips into a discussion of behavior and that's the slippage you get between gender and sex in this does that make sense where I'm coming from is, I, I don't think there is one isolatable gay gene, but I feel like my gayness is, is probably biological. And I also feel like that argument helped <laughs> achieve gay rights, because even if there were people for whom, for whom the existence of homosexuals made them uncomfortable or challenged some of their assumptions, people from particular religions, for example, you could say, fine, it might make you feel uncomfortable to undermine what you think of as, as your principle of, of marriage. But at the same time, I'm here. I didn't choose this. I'm not going anywhere, so you've got to deal with it. And, and I feel like that, that can be uh, a strategy to, to bring about understanding. Um, Kathleen Stock, she was, who was brought up sort of as the basis of that questionnaire on Question Time, she is someone who is considered a transphobe by lots of people. She would call herself gender critical. 
as far as I understand it, her core beliefs are that trans women shouldn't be able to use women's spaces because she wants to protect sex-based rights. My question for you is, is less is she, you know, about her particular views, but about the strategy of sort of protesting her, writing those things and whether or not she should, she should lose her job. Do you think that is a sensible thing for activists to be doing? Or do you think that sort of plays into the hands of people who say, you know, the trans lobby don't want anyone to be able to discuss anything? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the thing is that as far as I know, and I will caveat this with um, the fact that there is you know, a lot of this discussion is happening on social media. And so I'm not able to independently verify the facts of the last week, which is what led to this question. And obviously, she has her account of things. And I'm not going to say that she's right or wrong about it. But I just am going to say that I can't independently verify. But as I understand it, the people who have been protesting her are students on campus at Sussex University where she teaches. She sort of mentioned that some of it is intimidating. And actually, I have had, I mean, if I'm being sympathetic, I have had, I've had, when I go to talk at events, people on the gender critical side put up posters in the women's toilets about me. And it is a little bit menacing. I won't lie, as someone that's experienced it, it's not pleasant to experience. And it personally isn't my preferred way. However, I think uh, it's what's kind of been lost a little bit uh, in this is that obviously the power dynamic uh, is that she is a professor at the university and the students who are protesting her um, are often LGBTQ plus and uh, students uh, and, and sometimes feminist students too, who are 18, 19 undergraduates who um, I guess there is a power dynamic there where she is in a position. She, you know, she has a, is it an OBE? Um, she's a professor at a university. She has a huge platform in the media. She has significantly more power than the students that are protesting her in real world terms, something that she isn't very willing or conscious to admit. Um, and so I think it's worth reintroducing that power dynamic. And um, I think what sometimes happens is when you have a group with less power, so we're talking here about sort of students not all of whom are actually trans themselves, but certainly, you know, supportive of trans rights. And then a professor with a degree of institutional power in this context is sometimes I think, yeah, the, 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 the terms of engagement will be um, perhaps not, not, you know, ideal because they don't have access to the same forms of protest. Um, there might be calls for her to get sacked. That, now that might be something lots of people disagree with. Um, However, I, yeah, I just, I just think it's worth keeping ma in mind the power dynamics there of, stu you know, this is students to professor often. Um, personally, I'm not really one for, um, you know, I think pr there is a distinction between protest and harassment. I think people should be able to protest. I think it's a healthy student culture. It's about, it's actually healthy for free speech that people should be able to legitimately protest. If they're holding up signs saying that they don't like what she's teaching or they don't like what's in her book, um, and there is understandable reasons why people might not like it. She just in her book, Material Girl, she says that all trans people are basically living in an immersive fiction, which I would say is like a very middle class, uh, polite way of saying that we're delusional. Um, and I can understand why that would be deeply angering and hurtful to many. Um, and I think that's fine to protest that. I think that's very different to if there are people who are threatening her with violence or threatening her um, and making conditions in which she doesn't feel safe to practice her job physically, um, then sure, that I don't think is, I think that's 
beyond the limits of acceptability. What's very hard to gather from the social media kind of discussion of all this is exactly what the nature of the protests were. So I saw one thing that said she was a victim of a poster campaign. And as someone that's had quite mean posters made about them, it isn't pleasant, but like also <laughs> it's, uh, it's it, you know, it is a form of protest um, and it isn't actually uh, necessarily always an inhibition to free speech. Um, you don't really, you know, people have a right of reply. And the trouble is that the students who are making a right of reply don't have the same discursive tools at hand that she does because they're not in the same position of power. That was the incredibly witty and talented Sean Fay, whose book, The Transgender Issue, is available in all good bookshops and is currently, I think, still um, a Times bestseller. We'll be discussing that book properly um, on a future Navarra Media program. HGB driver shortages and a row over international law mean that some of Keir Starmer's allies and supporters are urging him to once again start talking about Brexit. Among those is Paul Mason. He has written in the New Statesman urging Labour to criticise the Tories' hard Brexit settlement. In that piece, Mason writes, What will defeat this chaos-addicted government is a clear alternative, not just on economic and social priorities, but on trade, geopolitics and the Constitution. And that means confronting the issue of Brexit. The Conservatives chose a hard Brexit. Skill shortages, good shortages and energy shortages are the result. They sold British voters the fantasy of a global buccaneering nation, reliving its colonial heyday at the very moment the world economy began to harden into rival continental blocks. The result is geopolitical isolation, severe stress in the supply chain and the accelerated breakup of Britain. He goes on to say... Britain cannot and should not return to the EU, but the alternatives to a hard Brexit are well known and entirely possible to achieve with goodwill. Britain should seek entry either to the or a single market for goods, reintegrate into European energy and labour markets and resume strategic partnership over security and defence. That would solve the Northern Ireland border issue and remove the threat of trade friction across Britain in the event of Scottish independence. So is Paul Mason right? Is it the case that by arguing, arguing apologies, for re-entry into the single market or a single market, Keir Starmer could close the 10-point gap that currently exists between Labour and the Conservatives? One person who doesn't think so is Boris Johnson's former chief advisor, Dominic Cummings. He tweeted... One way Uberdud Starmer could make his dire position even worse is to listen to Mason, Jonathan Friedland and Andrew Adonis and start bambling, babbling about Brexit again. He missed mega open goal on the Met telling women to hail a bus. Crime, not Brexit, should be the Dud's focus. But obviously, he'll fail. Um, lots of criticisms of, of Keir Starmer in there. Aaron, first of all, who is right, Paul Mason or Dominic Cummings? Dominic Cummings is indisputably right, Michael. I mean, you can ask me another question. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear what my views on, on, on Paul Mason's position, particularly on Brexit, has been. I think not only did the second referendum stuff help guarantee a hard Brexit, I'm not pinning that just on the people that wanted a second referendum because there were people on the other side who wanted a hard Brexit, but by making the issue about a binary choice of a hard Brexit or remaining in the EU, a compromise position, which is what Jeremy Corbyn adopted successfully in 2017, unsuccessfully through to May 2019, of customs union single market alignment, that compromise position was killed. 
And it was killed by people like Paul Mason, who said that it was a fudge, that it wasn't good enough, that you need to pick a side. If you're down the middle of the road, you're going to get hit by a car. And now the same cheerleaders for a second referendum and stopping Brexit are saying, actually, we need to do what Jeremy Corbyn was talking about. And alongside the fact that they've guaranteed a hard Brexit, in doing so, they've also cleared the field of any credible spokespeople for a compromise going forward. The kinds of people that could say, let's have a customs union, let's talk about closer alignment with the European Union. We'll, we'll not be in the European Union, but we'll be more like Norway. That's going to be very hard to do, Michael, in, in British sort of civil society for the next 10 years, because the people that should and could have said it instead lost all credibility by trying to overturn the vote in the first place. I always said that we should have access to the single market, if not be in it. I thought something like a Norway deal was a, was a very good idea. I was originally a Eurosceptic. I was going to vote leave. And once it became clear in the final weeks that actually that would mean, it increasingly did become clear from what Farage and Gove were saying, that we wouldn't have single market access either. I voted to remain because it was going to be a massive, massive shock. Either you want Britain, and, and this is a good argument, there's a Lexit argument that says, I want Britain to be like Cuba, better, better off and slightly, you know, not such good weather. But to build something from the bottom up, you can have massive state intervention. I, I think that's a plausible debate. But I didn't, I didn't agree with it. I thought it was far too much, far too quickly, particularly when you've got a left leader of the Labour Party. So that's why I voted to remain in 2016, despite being a Eurosceptic, because what, what is now happening was clearly too much too quickly. And it's going to be a huge, huge shock, mostly negative in many ways. doesn't mean there aren't some advantages that the left can press home, however. So I, th I think Paul's got it really badly wrong. I think he's got it really badly wrong throughout that piece, actually, not just in relation to Brexit. He talks about how, you know, Keir Starmer now has that one more heave theory of political change. He was, he was presenting Keir Starmer as the one more heave in, in the early months of last year, saying, we just need Corbyn with a bit of hair gel and a bit of professionalism, and that'll get us into power. Now he's saying, you know, the complete opposite. So Paul, sadly, is about as politically coherent as a wet flannel that you forget exists and you leave it behind the shampoo for three months and it's kind of disintegrated. That's kind of how I feel about Paul Mason's political opinions. Now, he's a very sharp guy on many things. I agree with him about some of the subject matter in my book about technological change and capitalism and, and politics. But on Starmer, on Brexit, and on contemporary British politics, he's all at sea. Dominic Cummings, you're right. Let's go back to the substance of the, the Brexit issue, because the point you make, which I think is is very important. I mean, you made a number of important points, but one that I think is especially difficult for Labour right now is that they can't really have any opinion on Brexit because all of their credibility was destroyed by trying to overturn the original result. And there was a very good example um, of this on Question Time this week. Um, you're going to see Alison McGovern responding to a question about Dominic Cummings admitting the Tories never had any intention of sticking to the terms of their Brexit deal. There's a whole host of other things that we could talk about um, post-Brexit that similarly we've got to build on and make better so that people can um, have a prosperous right, life right across the United Kingdom. But I do feel, I do feel it makes me slightly cynical um, about some of the promises that were made about this. To be fair, Alison, when Boris Johnson, David Foss was trying to negotiate a deal, you were too busy trying to uh, go against the will of the people and you're campaigning for a new a, a second referendum. And that's just the truth. The reality is the people of this country voted to leave the European it's all Union. Very, it's all, it's all, very, it's no. all very well to criticise those of us who, you know, 
who were trying well, to get a deal when the Prime Minister was no. trying to get a deal in 2019, I, or were trying to frustrate the will of the people? Which one? I, 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 but, but, but Samia, the so, question is, is it acceptable that the protocol was fudged to get an oven-ready Brexit deal over but, the line? Look, look, let me, let me have, answer this point. Let me answer this okay. point. Briefly, about, though, Alison, because then I need to bring in the rest of the About frustrating the will of the people. Actually, you know, what we needed was to bring people together and to find a way forward. And what I tried to do throughout the whole process was to find compromises and to work together. And in the end, it just became impossible. Now, of course, you know, now we're in this situation. To be honest, I think we need to put that behind us. And we need to look at where we are and say, we've got, we've got this agreement. Let's build on it. I don't know why you try so hard to get in your point. No, let, let me finish. Let me finish when you have absolutely no convincing point to make whatsoever. It, it's just not credible to say Labour's policy was trying to bring people together. A second referendum wouldn't have brought people together, you know. But by the point of the, of the 2019 general election, I thought Labour probably had to back a second referendum because they'd been leading on the Remainers for so long. To be honest, I regret that now. But the claim that that was to bring people together just never stood up, right? So if if you're still saying that now, it's just not credible. I think if she'd have if she'd have you know said on that panel, yeah, sorry, we we did we wanted to remain. And we thought we could remain. That's all over now. But, you know, I'm here being honest. It would have been a bit more credible. I want to bring the Dominic Cummings tweet back up because there's a few elements of it we didn't discuss, which I think are worth discussing. Um, so going back to this, he says, one way Uber Dud Starmer could make his dire position even worse is to listen to Mason et al. And he goes on, he missed mega open goal on the Met telling women to hail a bus. Crime, not Brexit, should be the Dud's focus obviously he'll fail. Now, I know that, you know, talking about crime is not always popular um, with some of our core audience. That's fine. Lots of legitimate reasons behind that. I do think what he said there, though, about the Met was very telling because the, the, the open goal, sorry, missed by Keir Starmer, was to say, look, yes, to be tough on crime, you also sometimes have to be tough on the police, right? And, and the police completely failed here. They've had six months to work out what their response is. And they're telling people to hail a bus if they feel vulnerable or if they're not sure if a cop is a cop. Keir Starmer couldn't go on the attack there because all he could do is go on the radio and say, oh, actually, I think Cressida Dick's a brilliant person. I'm pro-police. I'm not really comfortable criticizing the police. And I think Cummings summarizes quite well why Keir Starmer is a dud. Because a successful politician who was capable of doing even you know, the bare minimum of, of, of populist rhetoric would recognize that you have to criticize the police if you want to be credible. Whereas Keir Starmer thinks to be, critical, to be credible, he has to criticize no one. He, he's got a pro-establishment bias, which is essentially stronger than Tony Blair's, which is why I think electorally he is, he is going nowhere. Aaron, I want to know your, your thoughts on, I know you agreed with Cummings when it came to Brexit versus Paul Mason. What about Uber Dud Starmer should focus on crime. Yeah, I think like you say, for our audience, alarm bells go and you say, well, crime. But I think in this instance, he means, he means the police. You know, I think, I think the, the right and the principled and the popular position would have been to say, what the hell is going on? That the London Metropolitan Police Service is saying, hell down a bus. You know, A, that's ridiculous. B, the person responsible for this should be fired. Cresta Dick should, should go. She should have her resignation letter on the front, you know, desk of the Home Secretary's uh, the, the Home Secretary's desk first thing tomorrow morning. Quite obvious, and that's by the way what should happen, not just what should be popular, because it is popular. But what should happen? Um, 
It's because, Michael, like you say, Keir Starmer is not about trying to build political legitimacy or trying to even be popular or trying to even win. The, the core driving dynamic within Keir Starmer as a politician is fidelity um, to the establishment. There will be absolutely no conditions under which he criticizes the London Metropolitan Police Service or the British military or actually any of the core institutions of the British state. Now, that's how the Labour right does stuff. But equally, like you say, Michael, a, a Blair figure, for instance, knew when you had to transgress those norms because those were his norms too. You know, if you think about Blair taking the lead uh, when it came to the death of Princess Diana, massively stepped on the toes of the royal family and the British monarchy, massively. He really overstepped the mark, actually. But hey, it really did wonders for his public image, didn't it? And that's what Tony Blair cared about. Keir Starmer is constitutionally incapable of doing that. And that's a problem for him as a politician, but it's even more of a problem for anybody who cares about the Labour Party, not just being a vehicle for socialist policy, being a vehicle for literally solving basic problems. If the police are incapable of solving crimes, if they're poorly led, if they are more interested in getting their excuses in for bent coppers on the inside than actually doing their job, then we need political leaders who call that out for what it is. If we, if we keep on engaging in foreign wars overseas, which time after time fail, and the legacy of them is to inflame uh, regional conflicts, to create a fertile ground for terrorist networks, to bring hundreds of people back to this country in body bags, and, and while we're all doing that, we spend tens of billions of pounds. Yes, my contention is we need a leader of the Labour Party who is critical of the British foreign policy establishment. But Keir Starmer, you know, again, that's just outlandish. How dare you? Foreign policy establishment, the police, the Bank of England, the economic model we've had for the last 10 years. And, and Starmer says, our economic model is broken. First of all, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm. This is a guy that did economics for dummies with Ed Miliband and Charlie Falconer. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. Secondly, if the, the Confederation of British Industry and the Bank of England and all the boys at the old clubs in, in, in Mayfair and central London say, this is what we're doing, that's what the Labour Party is doing with Keir Starmer as its leader. The idea that somehow this guy is going to be the overseer, the enabler of even moderately progressive change is so absurd. I mean, it, it is so completely at odds with what he actually is. I mean, it's almost like a joke, Michael. The idea he could be the British Biden. Biden's actually got mm. something about him, and he's old enough to care, uh, to not care rather, that he can kind of turn on some of his historical politics. He's, look, he's a, he's a director of public prosecutions who somehow managed to be the, the leader of the opposition. In a moment, by the way, of immense economic, political turbulence and volatility. The idea that he is going to create something different to the status quo. But forget it. The and the Tories know that we need a break with the status quo on a bunch of things far better than Keir Starmer does. So not only is he incapable of solving the problems, he's also not going to be able to appeal to the British electorate. So we have a dud, Michael, and we also have duds in his cheerleaders like Paul Mason. Well, the next election is going to be the change candidate, Boris Johnson, even though he's been prime minister for five years versus the, the candidate for the status quo, even though the Labour Party has been out of power Well, by that point for well, 12 or 13 years, whenever the election happens, um, 12, 13, 14. So, it, you know, it's, it, it's not a particularly exciting prospect. And yeah, it's not going to work. The, 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 the promise of Keir Starmer, if you wanted to be very generous to him during that leadership election, was to say, it's, it's as a sir, as, as someone who is a knight of the realm, that you are precisely in a position to be able to criticize the establishment, as he did in his 
you know, very, very misleading videos and be taken seriously to not be destroyed by the right wing press. Because you can say, look, you can't call me an enemy of Britain. I'm Sir Keir Starmer. I was knighted by the Queen. So when I criticize all of these aspects of the establishment that need to be torn down, you should take me seriously. But Keir Starmer, I mean, you know, you could have guessed this, really. The fact that he is Sir Keir Starmer means that he will not criticize anyone or anything that's part of the establishment. He'll only criticize the left and then Boris Johnson as a person. And you know, what's there? What's the point? We've got one more story for this evening. Uh, Priti Patel has announced new plans to grant Border Force Guards immunity if migrants die as a result of so-called turnback operations in the channel. What are turnback operations? They are a new tactic sanctioned by the Home Secretary and will involve Border Force jet skis intercepting small boats and redirecting them back to France. The plans have been criticised for being in breach of international law. International law says you're supposed to save people if they're in distress at sea. What Britain is going to be doing is turning around those boats and refusing um, to, to save people because it's on jet skis. It's difficult to, to rescue people in that situation. That's why there is a need to provide UK guards with legal immunity if you're coming from the perspective of the Home Secretary. The sadistic plans were debated this week on the Jeremy Vine show on Channel 5. This is GB News host Nana Akua and author Gemma Fort. So if people have come across from the channel, uh, from France, which is safe, why they would want to take a dangerous border crossing and then have to be rescued. So basically what often happens is they throw themselves overboard. If, um, you know, so therefore the, they then have to do a rescue mission, which is part of maritime law. Um, I, I personally think that, I mean, look, you, if, as long as you know that if you come across, you will not be rescued if the boat sinks. I think that's fair enough. And that's why they're saying if, if they come across with jet skis, then they can't rescue them. Uh, it will actually hopefully stop the people trafficking. Because if you're supporting that they should be rescued, then you're actually supporting people trafficking, which means that more people will come across mm. because they will then think that they'll be OK. What do you think, Gemma? I it's one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard in my life. And I was truly shocked and embarrassed. Why? for many reasons. Firstly, this is a clear breach of international law. And just because our Home Secretary decides to try and change domestic law, you are still breaking the law on an international level. This is state-sponsored manslaughter. And, you know, to decide and dehumanise, to dehumanise these human beings who are coming over, and you're right, why do they do it? Because they're desperate. They've come from war-torn countries. They are fleeing places like Syria. But you can't Sorry, decide. So if you're watching some you people... You said that they've come from war-torn countries. They've come from France. Is some of them have come from France, yeah, but, but they've been France. in Calais for years, and so then they make a decision France. to try and get here because they're yeah, not being processed. You it said, doesn't matter. No, you no, don't no, get still, to decide... A situation That's where our paid officials will be on a boat and mm. they'll look at a father jump off a dinghy well, with a child. Well, why would he jump off the dinghy? He shouldn't do that. Well, he's <laughs> gonna, well, he wants to be rescued so he gets into the country. If they're on a jet ski, they can't rescue Or maybe they yeah. fall out or maybe the boat sinks and you are Don't talking about... Boat. Yeah, and also, you've boat. decided as another human being, I'm a human being you're yes. dehumanising these people. No. So my thing is, why get on the boat in the first place? You're in France. It's not dehumanising or doing anything to you. You're safe in France. You don't need to get on the boat. Secondly, why don't if, you go and spend you, a night in Calais in one of the tents and see how you? Well, feel I'm still it. safe. I'm not. I'm not going. I'd rather do that than get on uh, get on a boat and a dinghy and travel.
travel across the channel. Uh, secondly, um, if you are actually saying that, well, we should pick up people if they're going to do this journey, you're supporting the people traffickers because you're keeping this industry going, which is encouraging these people to come up. But if you just want to save lives, if you're if you're a border official, you might not be able to watch a child drown in front of you. Yeah, but you'd save more lives if you did not rescue people because then they wouldn't yeah, come but across that's, and that's, that would eventually stop the trade. Sure, but that's the long-term thought. Well, we've had you, if, you're, if you're sitting watching a child drowning, you're going to get involved. Yeah, you're, you're a murderer. You don't, you don't want to... No, you're not a murderer. You are. No, they, they've literally... If somebody's just jumped into the water to try and be... So that you rescued them and you're on a jet ski, you're not a murderer. You would not have the facility to pick them up. The in fact the that you instance. would be happy is very I worried. Did, did I say I was happy? And watch did other human beings lungs fill up Water. Well, well, that's what I this I is. I'm happy. I'm not and happy. This is from I mean, it was a really shocking intervention. It shocked a lot of people. You could see on, on social media, lots of people saying, you know, how dare they even platform this kind of opinion. Now, on, on one level, I am sympathetic to that argument. This is someone saying we should let people die as a deterrent for future people to do what you know, I think is something that is perfectly reasonable for anyone who wants a better life to do, which is try and get to a country where they have roots, where they might speak the language, where they might have family after fleeing war. I think this idea that you should have claimed asylum in France, so if you die in the channel, that's your own fault, is horrific. It's disgusting. Why? I think it's actually deeper than that, though. It's deeper than this commentator shouldn't have been able to say that on Channel 5, is because this is an accurate reflection, a very accurate reflection of the position of our government. This is Priti Patel's position, which is to say, by rescuing people in the channel, those organizations who are committed to saving lives are incentivizing people to try and look for a better life and, and cross the channel. So therefore, we have to start letting people die in the channel as a disincentive to come here, which is why she is now providing immunity for border guards who let people die, right? So, so she was, however shocking that was to hear that, that was an accurate reflection of government policy. Aaron, it feels like a a new low, doesn't it? Whether the government are kind of explicitly saying, we're going to let people die as a deterrent for trying to come here looking for a better life. Yeah, I mean, this, this woman's clearly a lunatic, Michael. She's clearly a lunatic. And, there's, you know, some, somebody says, uh, uh, Gemma, Gemma Forte, was it? About, oh, this is, uh, this is manslaughter. <laughs> no, it's, it, it, yes, that's exactly what it is. If you're intentionally acting in such a way that, so that somebody dies, that's, that's, exa that's literally exactly what it is. And the point about international law, again, hugely important. You know, I know this doesn't seem to matter to many people on the right, but it's also the case that it's illegal under international law. I just find it puzzling. But your point, Michael, about, oh, you shouldn't just attack Jeremy Vine about this. And I'm going I'm to return to that point, actually, about the Jeremy Vine show, or should we call it the Jeremy Carl show? You're right to say that, actually, you can't just dismiss that, or you can't just dismiss this woman as a, as a, as a, as a raving lunatic, which is what she is. Uh, because it's also the position of our government, which is also full of, quite frankly, evil people, I think. I think Priti Patel, I think she's an evil person. Sorry. Um, I think particularly on, on immigration stuff, I think she's evil. I think it's sort of inexcusable. She does it because it's in incredibly popular with her political base. But in terms of the, the sort of moral consequences of it, I think they're inexcusable. So it's politically understandable, but I think it's morally inexcusable. And... Like you say, it really shows that we're going to a very dark place, Michael. The kind of thing you watch and you think 10, 15 years ago just wouldn't have happened on television. It just wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have entered the person's head. And we seem to have been on this strange journey where now this kind of thing is permissible. Say, so actually, people can die. Well, so let's, let's situate this and actually something that really happened last year, uh, a young, or maybe it was earlier this year, 
a young Iranian child, I think three or four years old, died trying to cross the English Channel. W would you do that to a three or four-year-old child fleeing a country? Well, you don't know. Iran, obviously, um, religious minorities are persecuted, like Baha'i, for instance. What you do? What you're going to be? Are you going to be calling to them over a megaphone saying, "Are you a member of a religious minority? Are you homosexual?" Clearly, if you are a member of, a, of, a, of the Baha'i minority, or if you're homosexual, and you're from Iran, I say this is somebody who's Iranian who doesn't think we should be going to war with them, who gets called, you know, Labour friends of Tehran for saying we shouldn't occupy Iran indefinitely from these these, these warmonger gun nuts in the Labour Party. But clearly, if you're from a, a minority like the Baha'i, arguably if you're a Kurdish activist, uh, if you're LGBT, clearly you should be given asylum in the UK. Clearly, and that's from Iran. We're not even talking about Afghanistan, Iraq. So the woman is crazy, Michael. Uh, but she also speaks for much larger, much larger political terrain. I don't think it's. I, I do think, Michael, a lot of these conversations also not this, in this instance, but I do think the kinds of conversations that you see on Jeremy Vine, which, like I say, is a sort of uh, a political twenty-first century version of Jeremy Kyle. I, I do think a lot of it does ultimately border on incitement. Not this particular clip. But you, you, you do increasingly see these, you, you, you do see people actively egging on potentially lethal violence in the public sphere. And I do think there has to come a moment where TV producers, presenters, people working on these shows, people watching these shows, have to kind of ask themselves a question. What is this for? Why are we, why are we doing this? What, what, you know, what is this accomplishing? How does this make us a more successful, prosperous society? I, I don't think it does. I think it clearly just leads to bitterness, rancor, unhappiness, division. Uh, but of course, it gets it gets great ratings for Channel Five. Is that the be all and end all? I don't think it should be. And I think if if programming, on, particularly on TV, carries on like this, Michael, you know, where we see more and more programs that like Talk Radio and Katie Hopkins, we have big problems. And, and of course, the, the counter argument is well, we have the British Broadcasting Corporation, objective media. That's not good enough because, of course, we know the extremes, the periphery determines the politics of the centre. And so, if this gets worse, it means the dial shifts even on uh, home affairs and domestic politics debates on the Today programme or PM or Newsnight or BBC Question Time. Hugely, hugely dangerous. And the kind of tabloid politics this country's seen for 30, 40 years, increasingly we're seeing it on broadcast TV and radio. Not good. I want to um, return to one of the concrete arguments that's always made in these situations because that commentator was there saying, why can't they just apply for asylum in France? Now, there are a bunch of reasons why I think anyone compassionate should accept that if someone wants to come to a country where they have family connections, where they speak the language, then they should have every right to. I w if I had to flee Britain for some reason, I would prefer to settle somewhere where I spoke the language and where I had a family connection than to somewhere that I, I had none of those things. Also, though, this idea that we say, why can't they just apply for asylum in France? It implies that no one's applying for asylum in France and we're taking an unfair number of, of asylum seekers. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. We are one of the stingiest countries in Europe. Hardly anyone gets to Britain. Way, way more people apply for asylum in France than apply here. So this idea that we should drown people specifically so they apply for asylum in France instead of here. Like, what, what the hell are we doing as a country? It's so, it's so pathetic that we are so desperate to have even fewer applications than we currently do compared to France, that we are willing to drown people to achieve that end. In case you don't believe me, let's get up. Uh, this is from the House of Commons Library. 
This is about you know numbers who are applying for for asylum in, in various EU countries. They write in 2020 there are around six asylum applications for every 10,000 people living in the UK. Across the EU 27, there were 11 asylum applications for every 10,000 people. When compared with EU countries, the UK ranked 14th out of the individual countries in terms of the number of asylum applications per capita. So when people say, why are they trying to cross the channel? Why can't they just apply for asylum in the EU? Well, already, compared to population, there are twice as many applications for asylum in the European Union than there are in the United Kingdom. So if we think that we have to drown people to stop getting our number of applicants higher, like what does that say about Britain? You, you think Britain is, is so pathetic that we're willing to, to drown people so that we can maintain a position where we have half as many asylum applications as all the other countries in Europe? It, it doesn't stack up to me. I'm sure when this bill goes through Parliament, we will discuss more about this disgusting law, which allows border guards to cause unnecessary deaths as a disincentive for people to cross the channel. It's more disgusting than I think I can articulate properly. Um, Aaron, any any final thoughts before we, we close the show tonight? Yeah, I just want to say one more thing, Michael. You know, in 2015, there was a young kid about three years old, Alan Shenu, widely referred to as Alan Kurdi, um, who, whose dead body washed up on a beach in Bodrum. And it's a matter of time before this starts happening in the UK. It is a matter of time before the corpses of dead children start washing up on beaches here, and they'll be on the front page of all the newspapers. It'll be on the talk radio shows, Good Morning Britain, Newsnight. People will say, oh, how could this have happened? We're all complicit. How, how could things have gotten this bad? And the reality is, Michael, we know exactly who's complicit. We know exactly why things are this bad. It's because of people like Nana Akua and Priti Patel. That's why it's gotten this bad. So like I say, Michael, remember that, the people watching, the people listening, when we do get an Alan Shenu in the UK, these are the people to blame. Nana Akua, Priti Patel. These are the people who should be asked why they incited such hatred and murderous violence against people trying to come to this country. And let them answer, because it's a matter of time. Yeah, I mean, that, it's just the obvious. I mean, it's, it's, it's the intended consequence of these policies. It wouldn't even be, you know, oh, that was an accidental byproduct. They are intending to drown people in the channel as a disincentive for them to look for a better life here and apply to claim asylum in countries that already give way more people asylum than we do. It's, it's, it's inhuman and it's also pathetic. I, 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 there, there's no possible justification for it. Um, the Jibber Jabber Waki says, I work the camps in Calais and Dunkirk. The police beat people and tear down camps, spray the tents with pepper spray. Their claims are bounced around until rejected. It is hell on earth. Very important point. This idea, oh, why are they, they're not in danger in France. Their lives are good in France. Why are they taking this risk? They shouldn't take this risk. Yeah. Anyone who has any knowledge of, of what it's like to be in Calais just knows that's completely ridiculous. Let's wrap up there, Aaron Bastani. It's been a, a pleasure to spend my Friday evening with you as always. It's been my pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much. Some, some uh, less than savoury conversations, but hopefully Navarro Media is part of a, a brighter tomorrow. Thank you, everyone. You've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.